we recorded it on the 22nd for broadcast today, the 22nd of September, that is. My guest, Patricia Hampel, is the author of numerous books and publications um, that include poetry, essay, memoir, um, all kinds of stuff. She's been the recipient of many fellowships and awards, including the MacArthur Fellowship, and currently teaches as a professor at the University of Minnesota. We're delighted to have you. Thanks for joining us, Patricia. I'm so happy to be here and be welcomed with Dvorak. That was a lovely choice. <laughs> well, we thought we'd um, we'll tie in a little bit to your Czech roots at, throughout the interview, and so I thought we'd sort of throw that one in there. Thank you. Sure. So let's begin talking by talking a bit about your beginnings as a writer. You um, mentioned in some bits that I read somewhere about, uh, and I believe it was an interview actually that I pulled off the web, about the fact that you started as a journalist and a poet um, and then have gone on from there. What is it about being a journalist and a poet together? That's sort of an unusual combination. Well, it probably isn't so unusual. I like to think, well, it was good enough for Walt Whitman, so why couldn't I do that? I think that when I was very young, I was drawn to poetry and to um, you know, the personal voice and the lyric uh, sensibility completely. But I also didn't understand that you could be a poet. I thought that was something that was decided sort of after you were dead, that somebody <laughs> said this person is a poet. And uh, I wasn't aware of reading poets who were living. It seemed in school we read everybody who was dead. So I knew I wanted to write, and the one thing I could see that you could do was to be a journalist. And when I went to the University of Minnesota, I was lucky enough, even though I started out as a music major and quickly toddled on over to the English department, became an English major, as all failed people tempted to. Um, but I was lucky enough to fall in with a lot of really talented, wonderful people my age or a little bit older who worked on the student magazine and the student newspaper, and that was my life. And um, they included people who went on to become writers themselves. So we were all very serious, and maybe too serious, but we were all eager to be writers, but we were working in what amounted to kind of uh, journalism, at least a kiddie kind of journalism. We did uh, a magazine that we modeled on The New Yorker, and the editor was Garrison Keeler, and um, Lewis Hyde was an assistant editor, and I was an associate editor. And so we had that um, kind of playground, almost, you might say, to be who we wanted to be in the future right now at age 18. What a wonderful opportunity. Yeah, it was. Exciting, exciting time to be um, in Minnesota. It was. Very exciting. Well, I wonder if you would read from, from your Book of Poems Resort for us. I've, I've um, marked one of the poems, um, Early Train to the Cloisters, and if you can tell us oh. a little bit about this context of this book and then this particular poem, yes. then that would be lovely, and then we'll go on. Well, this is, um, I published two books of poetry. I don't know if I'll ever end up publishing another book. I have uncollected poems, but I've never put a book together. I really did see myself, you know, as a person writing poems there for a while, but then I, I turned to prose and seemed to get stuck in it. It's long work, and you end up giving yourself to it kind of completely. Um, this book, Resort, is the second of those two books of poems, and it has a very long poem which almost is a, a narrative poem about spending a summer at the North Shore of Lake Superior after a great loss, of course, a broken heart. I was, I was 
young enough to have a broken heart and think I had to write about it at great length. And <laughs> so I did. And um, the poems that precede that long poem, which is the title poem, Resort, about living at a resort, an old tumble-down resort, there are a series of poems before that that are more uh, just individual lyrics. And this one is simply, uh, the one you've chosen, is simply one about um, taking a, a train, a uh, commuter train, early in the opposite direction from the way most people are going. Early train to the cloisters, which of course is way up at the end, at the, the top of Manhattan. And uh, so I'll read it. Early train to the cloisters. Another aspect of privilege to sleep late, 6 a.m., and the faces are black, Hispanic, the oil of first work. I'm going to a gallery. My face is a frieze of easy pastel. For this moment, we are together. The conductor announcing stops on the loudspeaker is gentle, sane as a cool avenue and black. This public bedroom where we catch our est extra winks is grubby as any dream and intimate. We're underground, then we are in the air. We didn't speak, and none of you knows this happened, but as the doors shivered open and you were gone to the dark day, I wished you well, wished you sleep, this face, this face, that. Wonderful, thank you. Mm -hmm. I asked you to read that poem because I think it, it leads into, in some ways, the, the directions you've gone with your, your prose um, and sort of hints at that in the, toward the end of the poem and the way we leave the poem and the way you um, are sort of capturing the folks in the train that you are leaving and, and their stories um, or the ideas of their stories as you leave them. And it hints at this notion of disappearing worlds which shows up in much of your work. And I wonder if you could sort of speak at to how and, and why that's a particular fascination for you. Well, it's very interesting. I'd never heard my work described quite that way, but it's accurate. Um, the idea of disappearing worlds probably for me starts with watching my grandmother, who was a Czech peasant of a feudal world. For instance, she would speak of her brother, who was uh, shot for poaching on the noble's estate. And I remember thinking, the noble's estate? I felt like it was in a fairy tale when I'd hear her talk about that. So I knew she was displaced, that she was from somewhere else. And in some ways, I, being the youngest child of my father, who was very much the youngest child of this mysterious old peasant woman who didn't write English, for example, um, put me in touch with the 19th century in a way that most of my contemporaries didn't even feel. Their grandparents and parents were younger, and they didn't go back into history as far as I did, just sort of experientially. So there was that. Also, because of this grandmother, I became very interested in um, Czechoslovakia, Bohemia, where she had come from, and my grandfather. And I became interested during the period, of course, of the Cold War, when you couldn't go there. So there was a double loss, in a sense. There was the the loss of 
a history that was present to me in my grandmother, this oddity of this feudal life that she apparently had come from. And there was also the sense of, my God, you can't even get to that world. That world is cut off. It's behind something called the Iron Curtain, which has got to be the most incredible metaphor of the 20th century, at least in Western literature, the idea of an Iron Curtain. We really believed that image. We really almost could see it and feel it. So I, uh, sometime in the mid-70s, I was finished with school. I'd even finished graduate school. And I had uh, a job, actually, at a radio station. And I was an editor. And I thought, my gosh, I'm almost 30 years old. I want to be a real writer. I better quit this job and go off and write. And by this time, I kind of had it in mind that I would go to Czechoslovakia. So I remember I went in to my boss at the radio station and said, I'm, I'm going to quit. And he said, oh, do you want to raise? What's the problem? I said, no, I want to, I want to be a writer. And uh, my job, by the way, as I said, was to be an editor, so presumably I knew something about writing. And he said, what makes you think you can write? And I remember thinking, time to leave, time <laughs> to go. That's a terrible so, sort of yeah, lack it, of confidence. But it was, it was kind of wonderful in a way because it gave me the boot I needed. I thought, I'm, I'm just, I'm, he doesn't believe in me. I better believe in me. So I took off with a backpack and no Czech language to speak of, no money to speak of, nothing, but young enough to still play the backpack game. And so off I went. And I went to Prague, and I found my first prose book there. And so that was that was sort of how I was led to this lost place, which was right there. And now, of course, it's the place all the young Americans like to go to. It is. It's a favorite destination. Your, your first prose book is A Romantic Education, and um, it's about that journey, or, or comes out of, as you said, that particular journey. And um, I wonder if you would read just a little bit from the beginning, um, which gets us to some of what you've just been speaking to. Looking repeatedly into the past, you do not necessarily become fascinated with your own life, but rather with the phenomenon of memory. The act of remembering becomes less autobiographical. It begins to feel tentative, aloof. It becomes blessedly impersonal. The self-absorption that seems to be the impetus and embarrassment of autobiography turns into, or perhaps always was, a hunger for the world. Actually, it begins as hunger for a world, one gone or lost, effaced by time or a more sudden brutality. But in the act of remembering, the personal environment expands, resonates beyond itself, beyond its subject, into the endless and tragic recollection that is history. When it, we're, we'll talk a little bit more um, in a few minutes about the sort of powers and weaknesses of this autobiographical, autobiographical um, mode of the of the, the first person voice. Um, but before we do that, I wonder if you would um, just speak a little bit about this passage and how you're coming to this question that is a personal question and has to do with your own heritage, but a larger and your own sort of um, moving into being a prose writer. But this larger question that you're starting to set up um, that makes this m memoir 
more than just your story. It becomes a story that has meaning to many people. Well, I think it was troubling to me. I, I don't think it was. I know it was very unsettling to me to discover that I was embarked on writing a book about myself. Mind you, at that time, the memoir and autobiography were not recognized um, genres, really, for people in their 30s. This book I, came out then in 1981. 1981. I was writing it in the 70s. And there were no courses at universities on the memoir and autobiography yet. There weren't places in bookstores that said memoir, autobiography. It was an eccentric thing. I mean, you're 30-some years old. Nothing has happened to you, and you're writing about it. I mean, what what is this? It, it, you know, it's a very odd thing. And I agreed. Furthermore, I had been brought up in uh, a world that also is sort of gone in some ways now, very parochial Catholic girls' school. And I had been brought up not to talk about myself. And beyond that social prohibition, there was an imaginative standard about being a writer. If you're a real writer, you make things up. You have this fabulous imagination, and you make up characters, and you write about these imaginary characters, and you say with authority when anybody asks, oh, no, it's not anybody in the real world. These are my fictional characters. So that I had two prohibitions. One was social, don't talk about yourself, and the other one was artistic. If you're talking about yourself, then you must have a paucity of imagination. There must be a problem there. So when I was writing this book, which I did not understand was a memoir, but when I understood I had to write prose because the book was going to be big and long and baggy, so it couldn't be poetry, um, I was kind of horrified. I thought at first that I was writing a biography of my grandmother. That was okay. Right. That was all right. But the problem with that was that I had written 80 or 90 pages, and I realized, even I realized, they were the most boring 80 or 90 pages probably ever committed to paper <laughs> in the upper Midwest, you know. I was really horrified. And I put them away, and I was very discouraged because I thought, you know, they always say, write about what you know. I certainly knew her. If I couldn't write about her, could I write about anybody? And about a month or two later, just out of a sheer desire to honor my memories of her, I wrote a kind of rhapsody about her garden and another one about the Sunday dinners that she served. And I knew when I was finished with those, although they they didn't have any real shape, that they were alive in a way that the other other pages had not been. And I sent them off to the New Yorker magazine because I that was my idea of the best place to be published. And, and by that time, Garrison Keillor was publishing there, so I knew there was a man named Roger Angel who was his editor, and I thought he his name was spelled A-N-G-E-L, like angel. Right. Like you the actual angel. You come down <laughs> and take your work away. <laughs> so I just put it in a manila envelope, these two little pieces, and sent them off to the angel out there in New York. I didn't have an agent or anything, and I didn't, of course, tell Garrison about this. And back came these two, of course, returned. But to my astonishment, a very nice letter from the angel saying, uh, we aren't able to use these. Um, they're, they kind of lack a narrative line, but that doesn't matter. What matters is you write very well indeed. Well, that was all I needed, just that you know, line of encouragement. So I was trying to figure out why 
is this good? And the other one that I, you know, seemed to be about somebody else so, so dead. And that's when I discovered the great discovery of, of my writing life, which is that um, I had to be in it. That such endeavors need a protagonist, not a hero. I wasn't the hero of that book. My grandmother was the hero. But I needed a protagonist, and there was no other protagonist available than me. And so I had to put myself in it. And it was, a, it was stepping over taboos, you know, really for me to do that. And um, it was scary, which is exactly the way writing a book ought to be at some level. And um, so I did that. And, and then, of course, after that, um, you began to see a lot of other people were doing the same thing in other rooms around. And pretty soon there were lots of memoirs. And in a way, the memoir became, I'd say in the last 20, 30 years, the sort of the quest literature of our time. It took over some of the jobs and tasks that that first novel, the coming-of-age novel, was well, had been doing do. in the past. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll come back in just a few minutes to talk about that some more. We'll take a brief musical break. Listening to the Living Writer Show on WCVN. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is writer Patricia Hampel, poet, essayist, memoirist, teacher. Um, we're thrilled to have her in the studio, and in fact, this has been pre-recorded on the 22nd of September for broadcast today. So you're listening to a pre-recorded version of the Living Writer Show. We've been speaking about your first memoir, which you wrote about your experiences going to. Um, Czechoslovakia in the Cold War era and about your grandmother and about discovering the I and the importance of the protagonist, which was in fact you and the I, the first person in in this book. You go on to write um, another memoir, a very different one called um, Virgin Time. And you mentioned earlier in the interview about being brought up in in a Catholic church um, and going to parochial schools and and that sort of thing. Um, Can you talk a little bit about this journey? And I've I've marked a place that may sort of lead us into it, if you won't mm-hmm. mind reading again for us. It's lovely to hear you read. <laughs> this is from the very beginning of Virgin Time. Remembering was the only roaming I needed to do. I could do even better. I'm a writer. I could write it up. I would write it away, meaning this Catholic background. But reminiscence is a nag deep in its nosebag of memory. The grass of remembrance is never quite green, having been trod so often. 
And how many more rages and dumb jokes about the nuns, poor penguins, does the Catholic memory need to tramp to dust? The past is no destination anyway, though it seems so utterly a place. The trouble is, there are no humans there. All the figures have turned to wax, nuns in their Renaissance garments, the oracular voices of immigrant priests poised above us in bronze pulpits, the clairvoyant bridal froth of First Communion dresses, the Saturday night confession buzz of all the wrong sins. You can only get so much story out of these statues. As a result, people like me, fused by fascination to their past, find themselves taking planes to distant places, boarding with an urgency that suggests a family emergency is calling us home, looking for our roots, we say, for roots are buried. They're supposed to be. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You hint there and in some other places in your work that when the the self becomes the protagonist and you are writing memory and writing m- reality through memory, that... Um, the construction of that reality becomes something of a construction. Mm-hmm. Um, and the recall is not necessarily, you mentioned in your, in your, mem- in your book of essays, I Could Tell You Stories, um, when you talk about the piano teacher, that there were differences in, you didn't really have that piano teacher, you didn't really have this book, or that wasn't really necessarily what happened if we had been sitting in the room, but what you remembered was what was important. Can you talk about the construction of reality and um, how memory functions and how reality functions when you're writing autobiography and memoir? I think this is one of the big questions. There are two great goalposts that this form uh, plays itself between. One is the question you just asked having to do with the integrity of, of fact and the you know, porous nature of memory and what its relationship to the imagination is. And the other is an ethical question, too. They're both kind of ethical as well as aesthetic questions. The other one is, what right do you have to blow the cover or to tell the tale? Um, but this question about fact and and kind of um, uh, creation of narration, I think, always startles the writer because we have a tendency to think of memory as um, something that is transcribed. It's really unfortunate that our use of the word memory for what a computer has um, has become, has re-inscribed for us that notion of memory being a transcription. It's sort of a file Mm -hmm. that everything is already there and you just sort of unpack it. In fact, most people, when they sit down to write memoir or, or to write a memory, are startled not by what they find uh, in that, oh, look, here it is. I found that old sock that I've been looking for under the bed, and here it is, exactly the sock I knew it was. But they discover that they're after something that they'll never be able to hold up in reality as a fact. So that in some ways what people are writing about, and certainly what I've discovered, is that you're not simply writing about what happened out there in, you know, newspaper the way we do in the newspaper, right. the way I did as a journalist, but you're writing about what has happened inside your mind and spirit about what you believe to have happened. That sounds a little complicated, but really what you're doing is finding out what your relationship is 
to the tatters that are left to you. And so it's a ultimately postmodern, I guess you could say, um, preoccupation. I have a whole bunch of bits and pieces, and I look at them and put them together. The minute you narrate, the minute you begin to say one thing happened first and then another, you're, you're already putting a construction on things. I don't happen to be a person who is easy about invention. I make a real distinction between the inevitable uh, lacunae in memory mm-hmm. and simply inventing. I, I'm always troubled when a young maybe a student comes in and says, well, I don't really care. It doesn't matter to me as long as the story is good. And I always want to say, why don't you go over to the fiction writers then? You know, they they don't have this problem. Do you think that has something to do with, when you're talking about the way it it gets constructed, the the memory and the reality gets constructed in your your head and your heart and your spirit, um, I'm wondering if there's sort of a, a... a bigger truth that you're after when you do that. And if you move into the realm of invention, then you're actually pushing yourself away from this bigger truth and creating a barrier between truth. Is that something of what you oppose are opposed to in invention, or is there something else to that? Well, partly I, I do think it's important for almost political reasons to have a, a line that you understand when you're dealing with actions that occurred and when you're making something up. And if you're making something up, in order to create a, a, a truth that, that's greater than all, then you're writing fiction. And this is a great and honorable thing. It's one of the great, I always think of the novel as the great you know, long distance test of the imagination. It's a wonderful thing. But if you are confusing the reader and don't care about that, and are presenting as um, experientially true what you know not to be. It just strikes me as a lie and dishonest. And there is a strange amount of uh, willingness to be confused about these matters and not to see it as an ethical distinction that I, I simply don't comprehend. I think that there's enough confusion in the mind trying to understand its own past that we hardly need to confuse the matter by making things up consciously. Yes. <laughs> but it's, it's apparently some people do it, and I don't know what that's about. It may be tempting at times, but I, I think it's a mistake. It's a slippery slope, let's put it that way. We talk about sometimes, I, I'm taking a nonfiction writing class at the moment, and we talk about breaking the contract between the reader. And there is this sort of engagement with the reader that um, require, that, that, is one, that is perhaps part of that move out of the self-indulgence of the eye into the relationship with the reader that requires this sort of attention to real events. Yes, and well, there's so many different kinds of nonfiction, personally voiced, memoiristic books that are doing different kinds of things. For instance, if you have a reporter who chooses to write a nonfiction, personal book, uh, in, in effect, a memoir of going, let's say, to, um, to Kosovo, and who part of the job of the, of the book is to interview people who have lost relatives in a massacre, and if part of the book is about using the self as a kind of springboard for reacting to all of this. So you, so the reporter is making himself or herself 
part of the story, that that feels fine to me. But to make up a character or to use a composite character of one such person is problematical. And we see that happening now and again. Um, one of the most famous cases of this happened a while back with Rogobetra Menchu, yes. the, the Guatemalan uh, Nobel Prize winner, not for, for literature, but her, for the Peace Prize. And of course, part of the reason that Rogobetra Menchu became so famous is that she wrote an autobiography called I, Rogobetra Menchu. Well, it came out in the wash eventually that she had claimed and written things that were just, you know, not true. That a brother, she said, had died in a particularly horrible way, owned a gas station and was well and, and, and living, and a couple of other things. I've now forgotten what the incidents were, but they were major. And she said, these are my people. This is my story. I can tell it the way I want to. The idea being that she had a tri in her view, I have a tribal view of what has happened to my people, and if I claimed that it was my brother who died in this awful way, and in fact if he's there, so what? Somebody died that way, even if it wasn't my brother. So invention for the sake of a, a greater truth yeah. becomes problematic. I, I, I cannot um, uh, go along with that, um, but it's interesting to note that she she didn't um, back down or there was no sense of embarrassment. There was a sense of, this is a, it's my story. The whole thing is my story. This is what I get to do. Uh, we do feel, I think, most of us that this is um, a problem, though. Wonderful. It is the top of the hour. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, 88.3. This is the Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Patricia Hampel. We'll take a brief musical break and be right back.
Welcome back. This is The Living Writer's Show. My name is Ashley David, and today we are visiting with author Patricia Hampel. What a treat it is. We've been talking about what it is to write memoir, what it is to write poetry, um, and and truth, and, and sort of getting at that, that, and how and why it's become really important for you to write memoir. Um, you have... In a minute, we're going to. Well, actually, before we go into this other thing, I'd like you have a couple of books coming out soon. Well, next year. Next and year. Memoirs also, or well, how are you conceiving of them? Do you, if you have to throw them in the category. <laughs> well, one definitely is a memoir, and I I think of it as probably the last memoir that I'll write. I mean, it seems like you have one life; you only get to write one memoir. I this will be my third. But I've always seen the memoir as a kind of historical and sociological form more than a psychological form. Americans tend to see it as psychological. My mom, my dad, and how I got to be me. And uh, Whereas it seems to me other people, particularly Europeans, see it as a way to um, place themselves in the world and often in relationship to terrible events. I'm thinking of people like the great Polish poet Czesław Miłosz and Nadezhda Mandelstam, the, the widow of the great Russian poet Osip Mandelstam. Anyway, so I wrote one book about my ethnic background, my Czech background, and another one about my Catholic background, and it seemed like that would be sort of it. But I, in the back of my mind, I always knew I had another one I needed to write, and that was about being a daughter. What it is to be a daughter, to be a Midwesterner, and to have lived in the same town, St. Paul, my entire life, even though I'd always intended to go to New York. I mean... I was meant to be a New Yorker. How come? <laughs> and you did spend some time in New York. <laughs> yeah, but I've never had anything but a Minnesota driver's license. I've never really lived anywhere but in St. Paul, you know, as a residence. So I decided to write a book. My father um, was a florist, and so the memoir that I've just finished is called The Florist Daughter. And, um, in fact, I will be reading the first chapter of that um, here at Michigan at my reading tonight. The other book, which will actually come out a little earlier, is one um, It's a little harder to explain. I can't just say it's a memoir. It's called The Silken Chamber, and it's about the odalisque figure in art, those wonderful figures of sort of faux exotic women that Western men painted, particularly one of the great, great odalisque painters was my hero, Henri Matisse. And... So I decided, I, my first book was called Woman Before an Aquarium, which was uh, a painting that Matisse did that hangs in the Chicago Art Institute, which had, had a huge influence on me. And that figure is the opposite of the Odalisque. She's a very sensible-looking Western woman. Looks like she reads, you know, reads and thinks and is a kind of almost an intellectual, certainly a thoughtful woman, just looking at this goldfish bowl. No exotic silk jammies and, you know, very asexual. So that was what I wrote about as a young woman. And as I got older, I think I wanted to pick up the other, I wanted to pick the up other, the babe. Exactly. <laughs> and so, and so I, <laughs> time for silk jammies. <laughs> time for the silk jammies. So I started this book, and um, it led me to the south of France and also to some other figures who I thought were were attracted to the South, Northerners attracted to the South. And so that book uh, is a little, as I say, a little harder to describe, but it reminds me of a uh, visual art version of another book I wrote called Spillville, which is about Dvorak in Iowa, 
Dvorak having come in 1893 to a little town called Spillville in Iowa to spend the summer vacation. And it was, of course, a Czech village. Um, so I did a book that's hard to describe about music, Spillville, and now I'm doing one that I can barely describe about visual art, which is uh, The Silken Chamber. Wonderful. Well, we're coming to the close of the show, and I, I wish uh, that, that we, you would read just this little bit from um, your book, I Could Tell You Stories, a book of essays, Sojourns in the Land of Memory, um, just to contrast what reading was in the time of um, Augustine when he was writing his Confessions, and, and sort of to give us a notion of what reading is about now. Yes, Augustine, of course, with his Confessions, was in a way the patron saint of the memoir. In 397, he sits down to write something that we recognize as the kind of book we're writing today. Um, and uh, so this is a little bit about what it was like for him in his era to read to read meant to listen. Public recitation made reading a kind of team sport. The audience might interrupt the reader to pose questions, to make comments, to pursue the subject of the document, spinning away and back again to the text itself. When Augustine considers the conundrum of Ambrose's silent reading, for example, he finally puzzles out a likely reason for it. The old bishop, he says, might be apprehensive that if he read aloud and any closely attentive listener were doubtful on any point or the author he was reading used any obscure expressions, he would have to stop and explain various difficult problems. Wonderful. Well, it's been a real treat to talk with you today about some of the difficult problems of the first person and uh, writing and your work. It's, it's been wonderful. Thank you for Great joining Great pleasure me. for me, too. Thank you. This has been The Living Writer's Show. You're listening to WCBN-FM. My name is Ashley David. My, gra- my guest has been Patricia Hampel, and this show was pre-recorded on September 22nd for broadcast today. Thank you for tuning in. Please stay tuned. The sports show is next. <laughs>
nous vous remercions de votre attention. Nous espérons que notre musique en vaut le coup. Ces chansons ont été enregistrées durant la semaine après la Saint-Valentin 1997 à Room, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York, aux états unis d'Amérique. Asseyez-vous s'il vous plaît. Posez vos mains sur vos genoux et fermez les yeux. Les savifaves vont bientôt commencer. avec passion. Ils sont sérieux, mais ils savent s'amuser aussi. Les savifaves sont merveilleux. Ils me prennent la tête. Ils me touchent partout. Je n'en peux plus. Assis ici, ils me demandent trop. Ils vous demandent trop. Allez-vous résister Ne résiste pas. vont commencer enfin. Wow. 
You've been listening to the neutral period between living writers and free speech radio news. This is Chaz. The last couple of tracks you heard were um, Broadcast, Tower of Our Tuning, uh, Uto by Otekra, The Art Ensemble of Chicago with Go Head, and the intro to the Savi Fobs album, Three Fifths. Um, so, in about a minute, you'll hear Free Speech Radio News. Right now, you're listening to White Caps of White Noise by Tim Hecker. And stick around, keep listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, May 16, 2007. From KPFK in LA, I'm out abogado. Some people act as if the lies that got us into the war are a bad thing. They act, oh, they got us into a war and they lied about it. But you know what? It's been damn good to us. Halliburton's annual shareholder meeting is greeted with protest as the company distances itself from its subsidiary, KBR. Presidential candidates in the Senate use an opportunity to show off their anti-war stance. And critics say a new deal between British Petroleum and public universities is just business as usual. Those stories and more after the headlines. I'm Nell Abram with the headlines for Free Speech Radio News. According to multiple news sources as we go to press, the Bush administration and World Bank director,